You're listening to OnScript, a new podcast bringing you conversations on current biblical scholarship. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for joining us. St. Francis of Assisi is remembered to have said, Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Today we will be speaking with Professor Michael J. Gorman about his excellent new book, Becoming the Gospel. We will have to find out in due course what Mike thinks about St. Francis' saying. This is Matt Bates, and I'll be your host for this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Many thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity very much. Michael Gorman is a professor at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, Maryland. In fact, Mike holds a prestigious endowed chair at St. Mary's, the Raymond E. Brown Chair in Biblical Studies and Theology. Mike is the author of a whole pile of books, too many to list, but some of the more well-known titles include Apostle of the Crucified Lord, which is about to enter its second edition with Erdman's, Cruciformity, Inhabiting the Cruciform God, and Reading Revelation Responsibly. Today, however, we will be discussing Mike's new book, Becoming the Gospel, Paul, Participation, and Mission, released in 2015 with Erdman's. It's an outstanding new contribution. As always, we have a link to the book on our website, www.onscript.study. Now, I last visited with you, Mike, at the Society of Biblical Literature Conference in November. It was wonderful to see you there and to ponder matters Trinitarian with you. What, what have you been up to in the meantime? Well, um, you know, the, the life of an academic is never on hold, hopefully. And um, since we met in or saw each other in, um, at SBL, I've been working primarily on the second edition of Apostle of the Crucified Lord, as you mentioned, and that has now gone off to the publisher and is in process. And I'm on sabbatical this year, so my big project this year is a parallel study to Becoming the Gospel on the Gospel of John. So the, the working title, I'm not very creative, the working title is Abide and Go, John, Participation and Mission. So we'll see what happens with that. Well, that sounds very interesting. Um, and uh, I appreciate you're giving us a, a future you know, hint at, uh, at where your scholarship might be moving. Um, as we get further into the interview, Mike, we're going to be probing your argument in a variety of ways. Uh, but as a way of getting into the very heart of your project quickly, I'd like to start with the following question. What's the significance of your title, Becoming the Gospel, Paul, Participation, and Mission? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think that one of the main aims of this book is to suggest that believing the gospel is obviously critically important for any Christian, and for Paul as the sort of earliest major theologian of the church in particular. But what is critical to Paul is not only that people in his day, and I think in our day, not only that they believe the gospel, that that, but that they embody the gospel, they participate in the gospel, their communities and their lives reflect the message. And so the title was chosen to to convey that. Obviously, we can't replace the gospel as Christians or Christian communities, but becoming the gospel suggests that Paul wants his believers, uh, his communities, not only to believe the gospel, 
but to become the gospel and thereby to, and this goes to the subtitle, thereby to participate in what God is up to in the world. So part of the argument of the book is that Paul's call to the churches in his day and, and, and to us in our day is to embody the story of God that we see manifested in, in Christ, especially in his death and resurrection. And in that way, we participate in Christ, as, as most people would say, we are in Christ, according to Paul. But at the same time, we're participating in what God is up to in the world. Um, one of the verses that kind of inspired the title is 2 Corinthians 5.21. And that verse uh, runs differently in different translations, of course. But it suggests that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then, therefore, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so the idea of becoming the righteousness of God, the justice of God, is behind the title um, as we are in Christ. You mentioned in the book that an alternative title could have been Becoming the Justice of God, uh, and you started to touch on that, I think, with what you were, you were concluding with there, uh, with the, the mention of the righteousness of God. Do you want to develop that a little bit quickly uh, quickly for me? Why uh, the, the possibility of that alternative title, Becoming the Justice of God? Sure. That verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, is a critical one, in my opinion, for understanding a whole lot of things about Paul. One of the major concerns of 20th century and now 21st century Pauline scholarship is what does Paul mean by the Greek phrase, theou, the justice or the righteousness of God? Most people prefer the translation, and most translations prefer the translation, the, the righteousness of God. But a number of scholars have suggested that that phrase is at least as well translated, if not more appropriately translated, the justice of God, the, the saving acts of God that we see portrayed by the psalmists and the prophets and others in the Hebrew scriptures then get picked up in uh, Paul and other New Testament writers by discussing the activity of God to heal, to restore, to renew, to save as God's justice, God's faithfulness enacted in human history, and especially in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, and then for the whole world um, through Christ. So <clears throat> if that's the case, if that's what God is up to in the world, and if 2 Corinthians 5.21 can be or should be translated that God did what God did in order that we might become, and that is to take part in and to embody this justice of God, the saving righteousness of God, then uh, to become the justice of God is to take on God-like characteristics that were manifested in Christ, his faithfulness, his justice, his writing of the world. And obviously, once again, to, to repeat what I've said earlier, we as, as believers in Christ cannot replace God's activity, cannot replace the gospel, but we can be so shaped by the gospel that the church becomes, a kind, as I like to say, a kind of living exegesis of the gospel. So for, for the church to become the righteousness or the justice of God would mean to take on the characteristics of God as much as by the Spirit's power as humanly possible and to embody that as a living exegesis of God's saving and um, right-wising activity. 
in pondering becoming the gospel, one of the things that I find most intriguing about this new book is its relationship to your previous work. Uh, this book, as you indicate, completes a trilogy of sorts for you, um, but I think that you used the phrase that it was partly deliberate and partly accidental. Can you explain how this new book serves as a culmination, then, of your two earlier projects on the Apostle Paul? Yeah. Um, well, I think the title that, or the phrase that I've used most, and I think I use this in the preface to the book, is um, an accidental trilogy. So, it, it, But it was partly deliberate. Um, the three books we're talking about are the three monographs that I've done on Paul, apart from you know, more, either more scholarly um, small pieces or um, more uh, popular, if you will, books like Reading Paul and the textbook Apostle of the Crucified Lord. So we're talking about three monographs, three scholarly monographs. The first one, which came out in 2001, was called Cruciformity, Paul's Narrative Spirituality of the Cross, and at the end of that book, I suggest that um, the communities that Paul founded were to be uh, embodiments of the story of Christ's death, especially. And so um, in, in as much as those communities are present in the world as an alternative to the gospel of Caesar or the gospel of any other deity, um, they were missional by virtue of their very existence. They were they were about the business of representing God in and, and for the world. In Inhabiting the Cruciform God, which came out in 2009, the second monograph on Paul that I, I did with Erdman's, the argument of that book was that, um, in its essence, the cruciformity is really theoformity. That is to say that if we are in Christ and are shaped by the narrative of Christ, we are ultimately being shaped by God and by the story of God, so that to be Christ-like is to be God-like, and vice versa. So um, that book ended once again with a kind of hint that to be um, participating in the life of God through Christ and by the power of the Spirit is also to be about what God is up to in the world. But it was hinted at rather than developed. And so someone called me to task on this. Actually, a theologian said, you know, this is uh, not acceptable. You need to... You need to get into this a little bit more and, and explain what it means to be part of um, a community that's not just turned in on itself. And um, as a matter of fact, I remember when I wrote Cruciformity, I was about to send the manuscript in, and I had realized that I didn't have a chapter on the church, even though it was implicit in all the other chapters. I didn't have a specific chapter on the church. So I spent a furious weekend <clears throat> from Friday afternoon to Sunday night writing what ended up, I thought, being a pretty decent chapter on, on the church, but I did it all in about three days. So um, what Becoming the Gospel attempts to do is to, to take up all the themes in the previous two books and in other things I've done on Paul and to play them out in a way that suggests that Paul really is about the business of calling churches to be such embodiments of the gospel in the world, not just in kind of an internal holy huddle, but they're in the world, and therefore, um, they, by becoming the gospel, they advance the gospel. Let's probe back a little bit uh, farther, perhaps, then, or I don't know when this interest emerged, but one thing that, that interests me is this turn to theosis for you. I know I think it's implicit in your cruciformity book, uh, but obviously in inhabiting the cruciform God, uh, the theosis dimension takes uh, the foreground. 
Um, what brought about that interest for you? I mean, uh, did it come about uh, through, you know, an engagement with uh, the Eastern tradition, or how, how did you get interested in theosis? Well, of course, the topic of theosis um, is much more popular now than it was 10 years ago when I first started, 10, 12 years ago when I first started thinking about it. I think there were a couple things that led me in that direction. One is simply that I have more exposure to the Eastern tradition than, than most Western Christians, simply by virtue of being in an ecumenical setting. I was dean of the Ecumenical Institute of Theology at St. Mary's Seminary for 18 years, and we had Orthodox students. We had Orthodox faculty members. My um, director of admissions for many years uh, was and is an Orthodox Christian. So there was some exposure there that I didn't have prior to that. So I kind of got interested in the topic because of that. But in all honesty, what really happened to me is the more I probed Paul and came to the conclusion that he had a very, shall we say, high Christology, that is that God's um, identity is shared by this Messiah, Jesus, or to put it more Christologically, uh, Christ participates in the, um, the deity, participates in the identity of God. I was reading Balcom at the time and so forth, Richard Balcom's God Crucified. Well, long story short, I was working on this, um, these theses and, and came to the conclusion, as I mentioned a moment ago, that cruciformity is really theoformity, to be Christ-shaped is to be God-shaped if, in fact, the cross reveals the wisdom and power, in other words, the, the traditional divine attributes, the wisdom and power of God. So I kind of jokingly, tentatively called this second monograph Theoformity. We got Cruciformity, why not call it Theoformity? And it was about that time that I realized, hey, there's already a word for this in the Christian tradition. It's theosis. So uh, not only did it work, better, but it was um, much more um, integrated into the Christian tradition. So um, a little bit of influence from outside sources, but frankly, it really had to do with grappling with Pauline texts at the most um, fundamental theological level that led me in this direction. Then I kind of had to find language for it. As I've touched on theosis occasionally with my students and with others, um, sometimes I find that um, the reaction is, uh, is, is one of frightened, uh, frightened response to a degree, um, maybe because um, we're so accustomed to thinking about God alone as worthy of praise and, you know, us humans in, you know, in comparison were worms or something like that. Um, so do you have any tips for me <laughs> in terms uh -huh. of sharing uh, uh, the good news of theosis? Uh, what have you found successful in terms of, you know, um, kind of maybe overcoming that barrier of that initial reaction of, of, of concern about the ideas of divinization or, or things like that that could be associated with theosis? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the concerns and the reactions can be very strong. I can remember one um, – prominent New Testament scholar when I first gave a paper on this, it was actually later became the chapter on Romans in the book, stood up at the end and he said, this is the last thing American Christians especially need to hear. We have enough you know, self-interest. We have enough sense of our own um, place in the world being higher than anybody else's. The last thing we need to hear is that, that Christians are called to be <clears throat> godlike or to become like God. I certainly sympathize with those concerns, but the, the notion of theosis, becoming like God or becoming um, like God in the, in the word deification, 
Theologically, every Orthodox Christian and every other Christian who has embraced this term or has embraced the concept has emphasized that this does not erase the creature-creator distinction. We always remain creatures. And the notion is really about becoming like God, taking on by grace the, nat the characteristics that God has by nature that are shareable with humanity. And so the two that I think are prominent in Paul are righteousness or justice, dikaiosine in Greek, and glory. Um, uh, the splendor of God is something that God wants to share with human beings. We have fallen short or failed to embody the glory of God, Paul says in Romans 3. And um, that simply means to, to participate in the, the life of God, to, to take on the, the life of God um, and uh, that would mean in this life to, to take on um, the righteousness or become like God in, in as much as possible in God's righteousness or justice, and then in the um, eschatological sense to take on the immortality of God. So those two characteristics embody for humans the glory of God, to be fully, as fully as possible righteous and as fully as possible um, in the eschatological sense, uh, immortal. Not that we have these things by nature, but by grace. We never cease being creatures. And so I think this really does take up some of the great themes of Scripture and uses language that Scripture may not use, uh, although that's you know, debatable. There are a few places, Second Peter, uh, we may become partakers of God or in God. Um, this is language that most Western Christians don't know, even though it's been used in the Western tradition, going all the way back to at least Augustine. But it, it suggests that our goal is to be remade in the likeness of God. And that's very scriptural language. So I think getting people to think of this as a scripturally viable concept, even though the language may be new, is really the first place to start in terms of getting people over the hump. And then I think also, as I mentioned, reassuring them that um, deification or theosis does not ever mean we cease being human. Yeah, I appreciate especially what you say about, you know, um, not erasing the creator-creature distinction. Uh, and maybe that's a, a key a point of advice. Uh, certainly, uh, the advice you don't want to give is to watch Bruce Almighty on Netflix repeatedly. <laughs> uh, that's probably not the right way to go. No, and I think it's really this. This is why the, you know, the cruciformity, theoformity thing is very important. And I, and I only half joke when I when I say I really thought about naming that second book theoformity. The 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 God that is revealed in Christ, as we all know, is the God of of um, self-giving love, the God of, of descending to us, if you will, condescending to us, the God of becoming one of us, um, the God who does not exploit divine rights or, or privileges. And so um, we have to keep this sort of Christ-shaped or Christologically shaped um, sense of God in mind as we, as we think about this. So I like to say that to become Christ-like is to become God-like, which is to become Christ-like, which is to become more human. So the, the more godly we become, the more Christ-like we become. Um, ultimately, the more human we become, we, we take on this, this image of God that God intended for us to have from the beginning. And that's why I say it's a very scriptural concept, even though the language may not be in scripture, any more than 
I mean, we use language all the time in, in Christian circles. It's not in Scripture. Trinitarian, um, apocalyptic. We can, even though that word is there, the, the, the theology of apocalyptic is not necessarily articulated the same way. So, I mean, I think we have to find words sometimes for scriptural realities that are not necessarily the words that we're uh, accustomed to. following question for Paul, what is God up to in the world, what's the missio dei, the mission of God, and you contend that Paul's answer would be to bring salvation to the world, and as you develop the concept of salvation, you, you especially speak of it as renewal through participation, and I think this is extremely helpful, I think many Christians conceptualize the process of salvation as, as something like a forgiveness transaction that just opens the gates of heaven, but don't take participation seriously. So I thought that was a helpful chapter. In your second chapter, you kind of move uh, to something that might be new, I think, for a lot of uh, a lot of us. It was, uh, I think, uh, some of it was new for me. Um, and uh, this was your chapter, Reading Paul Missionally. Um, now, in the book as a whole, you're reading Paul on the one hand as a historical critical scholar, examining what Paul's words meant in the first century. But on the other hand, you're deliberately reading Paul from this framework of missional hermeneutics. Can you explain this a little bit more, this missional hermeneutics concept? Sure. The term is only about 20 years old, missional hermeneutics, but I think its, um, its roots go way, way back. I would argue the roots go throughout the Christian tradition. Um, missional hermeneutics, reading scripture with two basic presuppositions. First of all, that scripture bears witness to God's activity in the world, God's saving activity, as you said, the missio dei, the mission of God. So that, that there, the first presupposition is that there is a mission of God to which scripture bears witness from Genesis to Revelation. Of course, it bears witness in various ways, and it does so in, in, a, in a sense um, uh, in, in, a, in a way of, of unity and diversity, if you will. But that would be the first presupposition of a missional hermeneutic. And the second presuppositional hermeneutic, uh, presupposition of a missional hermeneutic would be that one of the reasons we read Scripture is to discern and then to participate in this missio dei, what God is up to in the world. And so... In a sense, um, missional hermeneutics is a branch of or a subdivision of a more general theological reading or theological hermeneutic. But as uh, one of the leading proponents of missional hermeneutics is uh, Michael Barham, the distinguishing feature of missional hermeneutics is to um, acknowledge and, and put at the front and center the idea of the sentness of the church. Um, we're not just reading for, for systematic theology. We're not just reading for uh, even for kind of personal or ecclesial internal formation, but the presupposition that we are we are sent, the church is sent. So obviously, I mean, in, in any kind of, at least obvious to me, any kind of good theological approach to scripture, we don't abandon the best of other um, ways of reading scripture. We don't best, abandon the best tools. We use them, but we use them to different ends. So I want to understand Paul as a first century 
um, Jewish Christian, if you will, if we can use that language for the moment, uh, as much as anybody else does, and what he was up to. I mean, I've just finished reading a good part of E.P. Sanders' new book on Paul, you know, 800 pages as a historian, and I, I don't agree with everything Sanders says by any stretch, but um, I, I agree with a lot of what he says about about Paul as a as an apostle, as a as a as a kind of convert slash called member of the Jewish community who went out among the nations. Um, but where I differ with Sanders most of the time, at least in his writing, is I don't want to stop there. I want to keep saying, okay, well, what does this mean for us who read Scripture as Scripture and not simply as historical documents? So how does this reading location of missional hermeneutics, and I, and I agree that we, we do need to, to read in this way, and I think it's very helpful. How does it, at the end of the day, I wonder, though, change what you end up seeing in Paul's letters? What do you think the payoff was in terms of what did you see by applying this hermeneutic that you don't think you would have seen otherwise? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've often heard Tom Wright say, N.T. Wright say, um, or ask the same question about theological approaches in general to Scripture. Well, what do they help us see that um, we wouldn't see otherwise if we're really astute readers? And I think that what any, for lack of a better word, new approach or different approach to reading Scripture does for us is to help us ask a new set of questions with new lenses. And so I think a lot of what I say in this book, Becoming the Gospel, could have been said by other people, and in some cases has been said by other people who don't necessarily approach with a, with a missional, um, a, a deliberately missional set of questions. But I think when we ask certain questions, we get different answers, and we see things we might not have seen. So, for instance... I'll take Philippians. I've written literally hundreds of pages of um, Philippians over the course of my scholarly career, um, chapters of books, articles, and so forth. But it wasn't until I sat down and said, okay, what does Paul hear? When, he, when Paul is describing the Christ-shaped community in Philippians 1 and 2 in particular, why is he describing them that way? Is he simply saying you ought to be... Um, looking out for one another and, and taking care that others' interests are above your own in, in particular. And it became very clear to me, and it, as, as to many commentators, that that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story, that there's a public presence to the church, a public presence to this community that um, is part of what got them in trouble, got them persecuted. And so perhaps... I would have said, and other people could have said the same kinds of things, but I think we see them more clearly, and therefore we can articulate them more precisely, more sharply, when we raise certain kinds of questions and, and come at a text from certain kinds of angles, in the same way that when feminist hermeneutics or liberationist hermeneutics does, or especially when it first did, begin raising different kinds of questions, or post-colonial hermeneutics, you see things that you might not have seen, and, and that, at least for me, has been the case. And I think it's been the case for, for many other people who've, who've tried to look at Scripture this way. The next several chapters, Mike, uh, focus on embodying specific virtues or attributes that are associated with the gospel. For example, your chapter 3 is Becoming the Gospel of Faithfulness, Love, and Hope. And then you provide a reading of various Pauline letters to illustrate this. So in chapter 3, for instance, you show 
that First Thessalonians can be read, you know, missionally to show that Paul expected the Thessalonians to become the gospel um, by embodying these virtues, faithfulness, hope, and love in their community. And in chapter 5, you do something similar, uh, talking about uh, how to participate and embody peace. Chapter 7 is about justice and righteousness and so on. Um, so here's my question, all right? Uh, what if someone were to approach you and say, you know, Mike, I think you've gotten confused about what the gospel is. The gospel, Mike, is the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, enthronement, and his return. People need to hear the story of Jesus, Mike, not, not the story of putting on virtues. How would you respond to that? Well, it's a good question. Um, I don't think my arguments are saying that the gospel is about putting on virtues. Rather, I think what I'm suggesting is that the gospel tells a story. And um, the story is the story of what God has done in precisely those events that you mentioned, the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. Um, those things need to be preached, agree 100%. And so we come back to um, the words of St. Francis with which you began this interview, uh, preach the gospel, use words when necessary, which probably St. Francis never said, even though it's attributed to him now. But I would I would probably argue a little bit with Francis and or with the Franciscan um, sort of motto there. I think it needs to be a both and, and that the only way to proclaim the gospel faithfully is to um, be a community, an individual and or a community that is defined by and shaped by that gospel. I think Paul himself says this. I think Jesus himself says this. You know, take up your cross and follow me does not deny the centrality of the cross. But it says people are going to know what the cross means, at least in part, when it is understood as the self-emptying of God. And we see people who, uh, on behalf of the world, and we see people who are um, self-emptying on behalf of the world. So um, they'll know we are Christians by our love, if you will. Uh, is another way of saying that um, the gospel needs to, to take shape in communities. There needs to be integrity between the proclaimed word and the, and the living existence of, of that community. So it's, it's not a gospel of, of virtue as much as it is a gospel of embodiment of the story that um, is a way of proclaiming the story. So we do a both and. I like to say, uh, and I've said in the book, um, you don't need to tell um, people who really believe the gospel to talk about it or to, to share it, so to speak. Um, dogs don't need to be told to bark. They bark naturally. But um, as Paul himself says, his own integrity as a minister of the gospel depends on his being as much as he can by the power of the Spirit, faithful in his life to the shape of the story of the gospel. So if the church or the individual believer is out of form, out of shape, um, has not become the justice of God, has not become the peace of God, um, the credibility of that gospel is automatically uh, annulled or at least uh, downgraded. 
So it, it seems to me it's fair to say you're, you're offering a thick description of the gospel then, and you're kind of broadening it, broadening it to include the categories of participation and transformation, but you're certainly not uh, denying the need to proclaim the gospel, uh, and uh, you're saying, though, that the proper way to proclaim it is uh, through an embodiment that becomes a, a natural, uh, through which proclamation becomes a natural extension. Sure, uh, yeah. Um, one of the things that grabbed my attention, and this probably has to do with some of the research work that I'm, I'm working on, that I was kind of honed into this, but um, in several places you state that faith in Paul is better regarded as believing allegiance. Now, you're preaching to the choir here, as I, <laughs> I, I like that terminology, um, but I wanted to hear you develop that a little bit more. I guess I'm, I'm just anxious to hear more. Uh, why do you think that believing allegiance is a better way to speak uh, about faith than the traditional terminology? Well, before getting specifically to the terminology in, in translation, let me speak for a moment just about the problem. Um, I think in much of Western Christianity, faith is understood primarily as either an intellectual belief or a kind of emotional trust. And both of those are legitimate. And faith in the biblical sense, contains both of those elements. That is to say, there's something to be believed, something to be acknowledged intellectually, if you will, and something or someone to be engaged to, 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 be, to trust, to, to have an um, emotional and uh, deeply personal attachment to. Um, but when... We look at scripture from beginning to end. When God calls the people of Israel, when God calls, when Jesus calls disciples, when Paul talks about what it means to be in Christ, um, the the language that's often used is much more than either trust or acknowledgement, but it implies a kind of um, faithful attachment, a devotion, a loyalty. Uh, God calls Israel to be faithful, not to go after the harlots kind of language and so forth. Um, when we look at the terminology, especially in the New Testament, the word pistis, faith, and the verb pistuo, I believe, or to believe, um, in, in the New Testament and in surrounding cultures, uh, can be used in a way that suggests both of those elements, that is trust and, and acknowledgement, but also it can mean fidelity. Um, and faith in the sense of faithfulness. And I think Paul himself in particular uses this to describe the story of Jesus as his own obedience slash faithfulness toward God. So if we, if we follow the logic of what God is calling people to and the language in particular of pistis or faith, we see that it is more than, not less than, but more than emotional trust and or intellectual assent, but it implies a um, complete dedication and devotion as in a marriage. Um, that is not well said in English with the word faith. It's, it's belief 
inclusive of commitment. And so the phrase believing allegiance has been used by a couple of people, not a lot of people yet, um, to express that, that when we, when we believe in Christ as, uh, as people of faith, we are taking on a deep commitment and allegiance that, in English, at least, is not necessarily conveyed simply by the word faith. To piggyback on what you just said, um, uh, this does bring to mind the, the, the last interview that I just did with uh, Joshua Jip uh, in his book, Christ is King. Um, and uh, one of the things that, that Jip, uh, I think, really does highlight is the degree to which this Christos uh, language uh, isn't empty. right? And so when we talk about uh, Jesus as the Christ, we're referring to him as the king. There's certainly a natural... Uh, it's certainly natural to think that the proper response to the king is going to be allegiance. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, I like that language of believing allegiance, um, and uh, I appreciated your inclusion of that. Um, I want to jump over to your uh, chapter on uh, justification and justice, and I'm actually going to read a quote um, from page 258, which I thought was a, a very strong statement uh, as a way of maybe giving our listeners um, uh, a little bit of the flavor of some of your writing and, um, and some of your strong claims. Uh, you state this. Justice is not an optional supplement to the Pauline and Christian gospel. It is who God and Christ is and what it is becoming. It is the church's name, the justice of God. Justification that is not inclusive of justice is un-Jewish, un-Pauline, and ultimately un-Christian. So one of the things uh, that I think I found most intriguing in your book was your absolute refusal, your just absolute refusal to separate practices of justice toward one another from justification as part of the order of salvation. And so um, in kind of thinking through that, um, I wanted to, to uh, press you a little bit. And in linking justification and transformation so intimately, you're obviously swimming upstream against especially the Lutheran theological tradition, which has insisted that justification is uh, is declarative and not transformative. Now, we all want to be charitable and ecumenical, and uh, you were the head of an ecumenical institute for 18 years, you said. Uh, but let's be frank. Um, are, you, are you calling on the Lutherans to theologically repent here uh, <laughs> of a faulty understanding of justification on this point? Do we, does it necessarily have to include tra transformation? Well, I don't have any particular tradition in mind when I when I write. Uh, I think I'm writing as much as I can in a way that um, reflects truthfully what I think Paul or whoever else I'm writing about is saying, and uh, let the chips fall where they may, so to speak. Um, well, first of all, take the Lutheran tradition. I think there are within the Lutheran tradition there are deep. Uh, resonances with the idea that transfer I mean, that justification is not less than um, certainly not less than a declaration but is also more than a declaration we have the the Finnish school of the interpretation of of Luther and we have um, certain Lutherans uh, I'm thinking of Mark Seifried my colleague back in Princeton days when we were in graduate school together who's been a very pretty vocal critic of the uh, new perspective on Paul and in some ways quite a traditionalist in his understanding of justification. But you read his second, his commentary on second Corinthians published in the Concordia series just came out, I think last year, you read his commentary on second Corinthians 521 and you would have sworn that Mike Gorman had written it. I mean, it's, it is amazingly 
he goes so far as to say that this is clearly a statement that for, for Paul, justification is an ontological change. I, to hear a Lutheran professor, <clears throat> Mark Seifert grew up Lutheran and became Southern Baptist and then has now come back to the Lutheran church. But to hear a Lutheran professor say that in a commentary on Paul is, is pretty remarkable. But I think he's right. So I don't have anybody in sight at all when I, when I write in terms of a specific tradition, although I have learned from um, various uh, traditions and would say that I think that that idea that justification is simply a declaration is widespread in the Christian tradition, certainly not simply a, a Lutheran problem. And uh, I think it's a misreading of Paul. So go back to my 2 Corinthians 5.21. I mean, that's really the, and, and that's kind of the fountainhead of, of all that I do with this justice and justification. Um, it's not the end, of, but it's, it's sort of the beginning point for me. Um, as, as Richard Hayes likes to say, and he's written this a couple of times, Paul does not say there that uh, the purpose of um, justification uh, is that we might um, believe in the righteousness of God or that the righteousness of God might be declared on our behalf or that it might be imputed to us. Paul says that we might become the righteousness of God. So it's participation and transformation from the get-go from Paul's point of view. So Lutherans are not in the in the cross uh, hair, so to speak. Although I would say, um, um, for anybody who reads those words and, and thinks they've uh, maybe misheard Paul, um, if the shoe fits, wear it. Mike, becoming the gospel is certainly a book for scholars, but equally a book for the church. Um, and I think there are many good takeaways um, from your book for both pastors and for church leaders. Uh, but if a church leader was going to take just one thing away from your book. What would you hope it to be? I would say we could sum it all up in um, in a phrase that I've used a couple of times in the book, that Paul wants his communities, or he wants the church, let's put it that way, Paul wants the church not merely to believe the gospel, but to become the gospel, and thereby to advance the gospel. Um, that's about 20, 25 words, maybe. Um, Paul wants the church not merely to believe the gospel, but to become the gospel, to embody the gospel, to be a living exegesis of the gospel. And um, that's, that opens up all kinds of creative possibilities for the way the church can be in the world. And uh, it's going to vary from location to location. One of the big emphases in missional hermeneutics is we have to read scripture where we are in our own particular situation. So what it means for, for my church where it's located to become the justice of God or the peace of God um, to live out the story of Jesus is going to be quite different from what that means in Baltimore City, which is just 10 miles up the road, or where it's going to be in the Republic, Democratic Republic of the Congo, where I'll be teaching in a couple of months um, or in, in any particular location. So um, we need to rely theologically, we need to rely on the guidance of the spirit to figure that out. Um, so that's what I would say to the church. I think you captured um, that very well uh, with, with the phrase that you used in the book, uh, non-identical repetition. I really liked that phrase, non-identical repetition, that um, uh, we are to imitate Paul or to imitate Jesus, obviously, um, as, we, as we think through the gospel, um, uh, but we are to, to not uh, 
uh, do an identical uh, imitation of them, uh, but were to repeat that uh, in our own context. And I thought that was a very helpful way to concisely frame it. I wish I could take credit for that term. It goes back to Nicholas Lash and through, uh, I borrowed it from Steve Fowle. <laughs> so it's not, it's not original, but I think it is insightful. I'm giving you credit for it, Mike. Uh, <laughs> Mike, thanks for the conversation today. It's been wonderful. I think everyone, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think everyone will agree that, that you've put forward a very, you know, bold, provocative, well-argued new research proposal here. I think it's really marvelous, uh, and uh, I've really enjoyed getting to talk through the background and details of it with you a little bit today. I'm sure it's been an equal pleasure for our listeners. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. We have been speaking today with Michael Gorman about his new book, Becoming the Gospel, Paul, Participation, and Mission, released in 2015 with Erdman's Press. We would certainly recommend it. There is a link to Becoming the Gospel on our website, www.onscript.study. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. You've been listening to On Script. Conversations on Current Biblical Scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our website, onscript.study.